Today's scripture comes from Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us all from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may be seated. Amen. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would help us to truly behold your wondrous glory. God, in the person of Jesus, you have done great things. And Father, I pray that that would transform us this morning. Lord, help those uh, wonderful realities take root in our lives, Lord. And would it move us outward into this world? Yes, Lord, so that people might know you, so that your glory might be put on display. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's great great to be here. Yeah, I would love to uh, talk to you afterwards if you have questions about Surrey, if, if you're feeling uh, God leading you to join us or to, to just pray and you would love to know how you can do that, please, please come talk to me afterwards. Would, would really love to, uh, to get to know you and, and share a little about what God's calling me to do in Surrey. Uh, if you haven't already, please grab your Bible. You can open it up to Titus 2. Titus 2, 11 to 14 is where we're going to be this morning. We're spending our Advent series in these same four verses each week, trying to highlight and, and draw out something specific that happens because of the birth of Jesus. When Jesus comes, he does something vast but he also does something unique. Uh, Philip Yancey, an author, describes a, a British conference that was taking place on comparative religions. Uh, a number of religious experts were, were gathered in a room together, and they were trying to discuss what, if anything, was Christianity's unique contribution to the world. So when they're, they're in this room, they're, they're debating with one another, they're kind of crossing things off the list. Eventually, C.S. Lewis, uh, author of Chronicles of Narnia, wa walks into the room and he just goes in very Lewis fashion, what's the rumpus all about? And they go, oh, we're, we're debating what Christianity brings to, to the world. And he goes, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace, unobligated favor to an undeserving recipient, uh, unmerited favor, grace. That's God's idea. Uh, I think, here's the problem, I think we have far too small a view of grace. Uh, I don't think we have uh, a big enough idea of just how wonderful grace is. Now, you might push back a little bit and go, Daniel, I know what I was. I know the sin in my heart. I know what I was saved from. I know how amazing grace is. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. And I would say yes and amen to all of that. I would just also say there's a second verse to that song. 
Second verse goes, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Look at what our, our section says. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Yes, praise God. But then it also goes on. It says that grace is training us. It's training us. God doesn't just save you and then go, okay, now figure it out. Now, now, now you're on your own. Now, now it's up to you to change. No, no, that, that grace that he saves us with continues to be active in our lives. Church, please hear this. Grace doesn't get a retirement package. G- grace doesn't save you and then go sip on pina coladas in the Bahamas. G- grace is, is at work in our lives. It, it's changing us. It's transforming us. So very simple outline this morning. One, what does grace train us to? And secondly, how grace trains us. What grace trains us to and how grace trains us. Firstly, what grace trains us to. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice here when God's grace begins to affect us and change us. It says now, in this present age. Yes, we will be fully transformed when Jesus returns. We will be glorified at Jesus' second coming. But because of Jesus' first coming, we live differently now. This process of of being transformed from one degree of holiness to the next is what the Bible calls sanctification. Sanctification is the gradual process of becoming more and more like Jesus, of becoming holy, becoming like God, who is himself holy. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 puts it this way, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. When God saves us, he gives us himself. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, resides in us, and with our participation, he transforms us. He makes us more and more like him. Now, this grace propels, I want to say, a holistic transformation in our lives. It's a holistic transformation. It affects us negatively and positively. It affects us internally and externally. Let me, let me show you what I, what I mean here. So verse 12 says this again. Grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace enables us to renounce, to say no. We we say no to ungodliness. These are external behaviors that do not accord to who God is. They, They violate God's will for our lives. These are external behaviors such as lying, 
and sexual immorality and theft and crude speech and gluttony and violence and go on and on and on. But it's not just external behaviors that are put away with. It's also internal behaviors. We also renounce, verse 12 says, worldly passions. These are internal attitudes or thoughts or emotions that go against God's will. Emotions such as anger and selfishness and pride, lust, laziness, and again, the list goes on. But, but grace trains us to say no. And that goes against everything our society speaks of. To, to say no in today's society is almost to be less than human. Um, Francis Schaeffer, uh, American philosopher, he, he says this. He says, we are surrounded by a world that says no to nothing. We are surrounded by this sort of mentality. And then suddenly to be told that in the Christian life, there's to be this strong negative aspect of saying no to things and no to self, it must seem hard. And if it does not feel hard to us, we are not really letting it speak to us. We have a society that holds itself back from nothing. Of course, this environment of, of not saying no fits exactly into our natural disposition. Because since the fall of man, we do not want to deny ourselves. And this natural disposition fits in exactly with the environment which surrounds us. So let me just ask us, what is training us? Is it the world or is it grace? Is grace enabling us to say no? Right now, what, what do you sense the Holy Spirit is calling you in your life to say no to? How is the Spirit training you right now? So, so we, we put off our old self, but that's not all that grace teaches us to do. We also put on. We, we don't just say no, we say yes. So again, verse 12 says, so grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age. Th these words, self-controlled and upright, that's the counterpart to what we just discussed. So we put off ungodliness, but we live externally upright lives. We love one another. We're hospitable, we're generous, we're hardworking, we care for the lowly. We, we put off worldly passions, but we put on inwardly self-control. We have peace and forgiveness and joy and thankfulness and humility. And so yes, church, what is God calling you to say no to, but also what is God calling you to say yes to? Grace trains us to turn away from our former life, and then it trains us to turn to God and begin imitating him. Now, let me say a couple things on this process of being trained. Uh, this word training in the Greek is the word we get our English word pedagogue from, or tutor. Perhaps a, a modern equivalent would be life coach. Now, this implies let me see if I have time for two things, but at least one thing. Um, this implies that sanctification is gradual. 
It happens bit by bit. It's a process. This is a, a life coach coming alongside of us for life's journey, which also means sometimes we're going to fail. If you're like me, there are these times in your life when sin begins to rear its ugly head again and you just go, I thought I was done with that one. I, I thought I had killed that. How, how come this sin is going on in my life again? Why can't I put it away? And it frustrates you. And it, it causes you to despair inside. And you wonder, God, where are you? God, are you even at work in my life right now? Um, C.S. Lewis, he, he's attributed with saying this. He says, isn't it funny how day by day nothing changes? But when you look back, everything is different. Day by day, it seems like nothing changes. But when you look back, everything is different. Um, Let me just encourage you. In those moments when you fail, don't look to the future. Look to the past. See how God has already been at work in your life, changing you and transforming you. Now look, if, if you look back, and you notice that there hasn't been change, that should concern us. That should be a warning to you. Maybe you haven't experienced the saving grace of God. But if you look back and you are different, that's God's testimony that he's at work in your life. Lack of perfection does not mean God is not at work. Jerry Bridges, he says this, God wants us to walk in obedience, not victory. Obedience is oriented towards God. Victory is oriented towards self. May we be people who strive to obey, who are quick to repent and admit when we have failed, and then who strive to obey once more. But the second thing training implies is that it's hard. It doesn't always come easy, and sometimes it's going to take a lot of work. I was reading... um, the book Velveteen Rabbit recently. I don't know why I hadn't read this. It's a kid's book. Uh, It's the story of a little stuffed rabbit who um, is given to a young little boy, and this rabbit wants to be real. And he's he's wrestling with how, how he can become real, and so he begins to have a conversation with this toy horse that has been around a lot longer than he has been. And so I don't have it on the slide, but uh, you can imagine this conversation between a rabbit and a horse as one does. Um, The rabbit goes, what is real? And then the skin horse replies, real isn't how you are made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But things don't matter at all, because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. The rabbit sighed. He longed to become real but he wished that he could become it without these uncomfortable things happening to him. I think if we're honest, we're a little bit like the velveteen rabbit. We 
want to become real. We want God to work in our lives and to transform us, but, but we're scared that it's going to hurt. I think sometimes it does hurt. Sometimes things seem hard and we go, apparently I'm not cut out for this. I guess I'm just destined to be the same way that I always was. That must be for someone else. No, no, no. Look, look, grace is a trainer. <laughs> a trainer gets you to do things you don't always want to do. No pain, no gain. But you need to know you belong to God. That you are real. And this process of pain is, is God transforming you. It's God refining you and trying to give you more of himself. Now, how does this grace train us? Second point. How does, if that's what, if that's what we're supposed to be, more like Jesus, how does grace actually make us like that? Let, let me give you three things. Grace is a means, grace is the model, and grace is the motivation. Firstly, grace is the means. Look, look at verse 13. Paul writes, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, that word lawlessness is, is Paul's summarizing of those two words, ungodliness and worldly passions. We're redeemed from all lawlessness, and he's to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So why is it that we can escape and be changed out of lawlessness? It's because Paul says, Jesus redeems us. He redeems us. Um, recently, I watched the movie Spirited, the new Apple TV Christmas musical. Hands up, hands up if you've seen this movie. Okay, just a few of us. Let, let me explain it to you um, without trying to give too, too much away. Basically, uh, it's a musical with Will Ferrell and, and Ryan Reynolds. You're like, that sounds awful. I liked it. Um, don't, don't, don't judge me. Um, but anyways, in, at one point in the movie... Uh, Will Ferrell falls in love. Great, I know. And, and he is, though, all of a sudden wrestling with his past. He, he's being reminded of his wickedness, of all the wrongs he had done, of all the, the pain and hurt that's in his wake. And, and he's in love, but he's trying to figure out if he actually deserves to be loved. He loves this woman, but he's not sure if he deserves this other woman's love. And so he begins, naturally, as one does, to sing. And so he says this. Will Ferrell singing says this. Am I forever unredeemable? Can I ever overcome all the wrongs I'm running from? Can my worst be left behind? And do I deserve to find there's a soul who could see any good in me? Or will I only ever be unredeemable? Am I forever unredeemable? Can I be the man who breaks from a lifetime of mistakes? Can my worst be left behind? And do I deserve to find the kind of love that I could lean on every day? Or will I learn I have to stay unredeemable? And honestly, it's quite a moving song. It's, it's getting at the depths, I think, of the human heart. This is our longing, to, to be loved and accepted by someone. But yet there's this tension in us. 
We, we sense our guilt. We sense our shame. And we're just not sure if we deserve to, to experience this love. And so he goes on to sing. And th- this is his answer in the song. It reaches the high point of the song. And he says this, You have to believe inside the worst of us there is some decency somewhere. You know that you can achieve something miraculous if only you'd care. I have to go. I have to try. That's how I'll know. Know if I am forever unredeemable. Now, I'm, I'm watching this movie. I'm, I'm listening to these lyrics. Right? Just try harder. Like, yes, just keep going. You'll find something good in you. Like, like, like if you just put in enough effort, you can unearth this goodness in you, and then you deserve to be loved. And I'm watching this, and I'm, I'm feeling so hollow inside. I, I feel such despair. I feel frustrated, and I want to just yell out, Jesus will redeem you. Jesus redeems you. Look, verse 11 says, at Christmas time, the grace of God appears. Which means that God doesn't love you because you're good. Which means it's not, it's not something good in you that makes God love you. God loves you because he is lovely. It's not your good that makes God love you. It's God's love for you that makes you good. Jesus redeems you. It's an act of grace. It's not something we deserve. This word redeemed in the Bible is this language of buying back, of of purchasing something back that once belonged to us. The Bible says God bought us back, that we were once slaves to sin, that that we belonged to lawlessness, that we had a, a slave master and we could not escape its chains. And so sin was our default mode. Sin is what, what our slave master made us do. But then God emptied heaven of its most valuable treasure. God himself came down in the person of Jesus, born in a manger. And Jesus gave of his own life to ransom us. It's his blood that bought us back. He bore our guilt on the cross. Jesus carried our shame on that tree. And so now I belong to him. He is my new master. And so now I can live for him. I'm I'm, I'm broken of my past. Look, we may not be perfect, but there there is, if you are trusting in Jesus, a chasm in your life that you cannot go back to. There is a chasm between what you once were and what you now are. And so we are now those who belong to God. We are his treasured possession, it says in Titus here. We belong to him, and so we can live for him. Grace is the means of our redemption. It enables us to escape our past and to be free from sin. Secondly, grace is the model. I don't have time for this, but all I want to say is this, that grace Um, is not a force. Grace is a person. It's Jesus. And so look to Jesus. Jesus actually teaches us and and shows us what it looks like to be fully human. You want to see how to live? Look at Jesus. So my encouragement to you is read the birth narratives this Christmas. 
Read the Gospels of, of Matthew and, and look and, and look at how Jesus lived and try to be like him. Let grace show you, let Jesus show you what it looks like to live a life of flourishing and to be truly human. But the third thing grace does is it motivates us. Grace motivates us. It's the motivation for change. Um, I think a natural and appropriate pushback is that you, there are a lot of people who do good in this world and they're not Christians. I think, I think that's good pushback. There's a lot of people who live upright, moral lives who want nothing to do with grace or to do with Jesus. And so why, why do I need grace to be different? Seems as though you can just do this on your own. Um, Jonathan Edwards was an American pastor and theologian, and he wrote a book called The, the Nature of True Virtue. The nature of true virtue. And in his book, he compares common virtue, which belongs to everyone, and true virtue, which is that what the Christian does. Now, I heard Tim Keller summarize his kind of book very helpfully, and so I'm going to follow his, his line of reasoning here. He goes like this. Okay, let's take a virtue, for example. Honesty. Honesty. What is it that makes us honest? He says there, there's two motivations. The first one is fear. We're honest because we think it'll benefit us in the long run. We're afraid of what will happen if we get caught, if we're dishonest. Right? We're, we're honest because if someone catches us in a lie, that could be the end of our career or our reputation. So I'm honest because I'm afraid of, of what could happen to me if I'm not. So there's fear, but then there's also pride. We're honest because, well, I'm better than those terrible individuals who had to lie to get ahead in life. I, I'm honest because I'm not going to cheat. Don't those people know that they're cheating others out of something that they deserve? So we're honest because we think it makes us better than others. So, so there's fear and, and there's pride. Now, Edwards isn't opposed to common virtue. He says it's a good thing. He just says there's something wrong at the very core of common virtue. See, wh why are we honest? Well, because of fear and pride. But why are we dishonest? It's also because of fear and pride. Do you, do you get that? We lie or we're dishonest because we're afraid of what would happen to us if we don't have that thing that we're seeking after. We lie because we have a, a view of ourselves or we want to have a reputation in, in people's eyes and so we lie to portray ourselves a, a certain way. So, so do you see what Edwards is saying? In, in common virtue, we don't actually root out the problem of our heart. What we do is we use the momentum of, of fear and pride and, and Tim Keller says we do a, a judo flip. We take the momentum of, of fear and pride and we just flip it and make us, and it makes us honest. The problem is, how do we know if it's not just going to flip right back and we're going to be dishonest? See, in true virtue, though, that's brought about by grace. And grace actually gets at our heart and it changes us from the inside. Look at verse 11 and 12 again. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and then I skipped a word, godly lives. We, we put off outwardly and inwardly those actions which are sinful. We, we put on outwardly and inwardly actions that are righteous. But there's another dimension. It's not just horizontal. It's not just internal. Paul of a sense, no, no, grace introduces a vertical aspect to our lives. We want to live godly lives. See, see all of a sudden, grace says, I want to do it for him. I want to live for his sake. I want to live because of what he's done for me. See, Christmas shows us this. Christmas shows us how absolutely broken and hopeless we were. <laughs> it, look, we are so messed up that the only person who could fix us is God. <laughs> God himself had to come to us. That's how broken we are. And you know what that does? That shatters all my pride. I can't feel superior to anyone else. My goodness, God had to come to save me. That's how broken I am. But Christmas also takes away our fear. Do you not realize God came to save you? Do you see how wonderful that is? God says, I want this person. I want a relationship with them. I love them so much. I'm going to come for them. And so if God loves me like that, if I'm his treasured possession, what do I have to fear anymore? I don't need to worry about what other people think of me. God thinks highly of me. See, grace changes us in our hearts. It changes us at our core. It changes us from the inside out. And so when we reflect on what God's done for me, I want to live for him. I want to please him. I want to obey him. I want to give glory to the great king who made me his heir. The, the Puritans, they used to talk about how this grace works in our lives. I'll end with this example. They gave the example, an illustration of a live oak tree. A live oak tree is a tree where the branches, even not the branches, where the leaves, even though they die, they don't fall off the tree. So, so these leaves remain on the tree, even though it can be freezing cold outside, even though it might snow, even though the wind may howl against them, the leaves remain on the tree. What is it that eventually causes those leaves to fall off? It's warmth. It's the warmth of the springtime sun. It's not try harder, dig in a little deeper, muster, enough, muster up enough energy on your own, then that sin will fall away. No, no, it's the warmth of grace. It's becoming full of wonder at what Jesus has done for me, that he left heaven to make me his own. That is what changes us. It's grace that saves us, and it's grace that trains us to be more and more like the one who loved us. Um, would you please stand as we respond together?